You're listening to Riding a Rocket, presented by RocketShipJobs.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Riding a Rocket. On today's episode, we have Pete Caputa. He uh, was number 15 employee at HubSpot, the fourth salesperson there. He rose through the ranks, became a VP of sales, and then in 2016 left to be the CEO of Databox. Um, I've uh, I've been following Pete for a really long time, actually. So uh, I think around like 2012, I, I ended up finding you. Uh, I was reading okay. your blog, uh, the Collaborative Growth Network, back in the day. Because <laughs> um, I was at EMC, so I, I was I following HubSpot. I was up in that up in that area. So really excited okay. to finally talk, uh, you know, in person for the first time. Well, yeah, it's good to. Good connect. I know I noticed you on uh, Twitter a, a little while ago, and we've been going back and forth once in a while. So. Yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, I've got. So I've, I've, I looked at up, up some of your tweets, like your most popular tweets from back in the day. So yeah, we got we got a bunch we can uh, <laughs> we, we we can chat about. I'm, I'm excited. Okay, sounds um, good. So before we get going, anything I missed there in terms of who you are that you want to add to that? No, you you covered it pretty well. It was uh, got lucky and uh, ended up connecting with the HubSpot guys really early on and ended up joining the team right after they raised their Series A funding and then uh, stayed there for nine years. Uh, ended up joining as CEO at Databox three years ago and uh, we've been building that company out. So big fan of uh, early stage startups. I had a startup before HubSpot that I did for several years. Didn't quite work out. We ended up shutting it down. But, uh, but love startups, love being early in startups. I know that's a focus of yours with uh, yeah. Rocket Chip Jobs. So. 100%. So when you met the HubSpot guys early, what made you decide to to join the company instead of staying at your startup that you were at? Uh, so it was 2007, just to put it into perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, there was software as a service, but it was a pretty nascent category. There weren't many companies to really look up to Salesforce and maybe constant contact in the small business space. But uh-huh. And there were others, but not, not I wouldn't, there wouldn't be like, household names for job hunters, right? Yeah. So wasn't a whole lot going on there. You know, we had we had built ours. We started around 2001, nights and weekends. So we were at it for a while. When you say yours, that your your old startup was a software My old as a service startup. as well? Yeah, it okay. was software as a service. It was um it actually allowed event promoters, event planners to build a public website for their event to mm. out market it and handle registrations, things like that. It was like a website builder just for events. Okay, nice. Like an Eventbrite kind of competitor, almost. Yeah, yeah. In fact, as one of uh, one of Eventbrite's investors early on said, "Oh, they, right after they raised money, said you got to talk to these guys," and I dismissed it, mm-hmm. saying, "Ah, it's just like it's just like a a simple registration tool on top of uh, on top of PayPal." And it was at the time; it was very basic. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, you should talk to him." I'm like, "Nah, we're already further along than that." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You made the right decision, though. It seems like you, you landed on your feet. <laughs> Hubs yeah, worked yeah, yeah. Out. <laughs> so I ended up hiring, a, a to answer your original question, I ended up hiring a sales coach mm-hmm. in my startup to learn how to sell more effectively. His name was uh, Rick Roberge mm-hmm. and taught me a lot. I was doing well. But then I realized, like, all right, I can sell this stuff, but then I also have to deliver it. We were so small. We didn't have any funding. And so when uh, Mark Roberge, who's Rick's son, reached mm-hmm. out to me and said, hey, I'm starting to build the sales team at HubSpot, you know, initially I said, ah, no, I got my own thing. And then as I started realizing, it's like, oh, I'm not making much money, uh, <laughs> working my butt off, don't see the path to, um, you know, building a team or, or getting us to any level of success. And so mm-hmm. 
they offered me a, a job and it was basically three times what I was making in my startup. <laughs> I wasn't paying myself much and you know, a little bit of equity, not much at the time. And I said, all right, well, let's do it. And at the same time, I had just, my wife and I were married for a little while, but we were just bought a house and we were about to have a baby. So it was a, it was a smart financial decision, believe it or not, to join an early stage startup at the time for me. So, so was it was it the the financial aspect, like of having a a steady salary, that made you say I'm going to join, or did you see the potential, like, of what it became, as well? I, I was interested. So I remember very vividly going into a room uh, with Mark. Uh, Mark and I had been talking. Actually, I had met Mark like a year before when they were when HubSpot was just starting, and I actually introduced him to a first few first few companies that ended up becoming HubSpot customers even before I joined. And so I knew what they were up to, really smart guys, all went to MIT for their MBA. But I remember very vividly, I went into a room, as Mark and I had been talking for a while about the job, and Brian and Dharmesh were there, Brian Halligan, and Dharmesh Chala, the co-founders of HubSpot. And I remember Brian giving this pitch to me about inbound marketing. It was, you know, it was a little different then, but not much different. He's been very consistent over the years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talked about, you know, with all the different tools that allow people to grow their grow their website traffic and get leads and build their business in this inbound way. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, SEO is stuff I had already known and had been doing a little bit of. And so I so he said, what do you think? And I said, well, it sounds more interesting than what I'm working on right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that was kind of how the decision, but he's a good salesman. I remember Darvish at the time actually was with my business partner and we were trying to sell HubSpot on buying our tool because we had built this event registration tool and we had email marketing built in because at the time, the only way you really could promote an event at the time was through email. Mm -hmm. And so we had a fully robust built out email marketing tool around it. And I said, well, you should buy us and we can roll in email marketing. And I remember, and and we had a website builder for the events in which we could use. And I remember Darvish saying, no, I don't think we'll we'll ever do email marketing. That's not something we want to get into. Um, <laughs> obviously, of course, HubSpot. I think uh, yeah. need marketing automation, email marketing automation, much more commonplace than. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they've than, gotten into a lot at, at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're doing everything now. So one thing that I think you're like kind of kind of famous for within HubSpot, or anybody who knows the company at all, is starting the partner program. Yeah. What started that idea in your head? Like, can you tell me about like what made you think about that and think about offering yeah. that to upside? So my partner and I in our first business, we were building websites kind of on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, we met at a company where we both were working, a big company, and we met because we were working on a website project together. So we were doing websites for a while, started to learn about SEO. And so as we were selling the event software, I was also doing email marketing for companies. I was Mm -hmm. doing website builds for companies outside of our software, doing some level, a little bit of SEO consulting here and there. So I knew what it was like to sell marketing services. Mm -hmm. It was not easy at the time, especially you had to you had to know HTML and CSS or or you might have learned WordPress at the time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Moz was around, but most people just kind of figured out SEO as they went. Mm -hmm. I knew how hard it was to deliver marketing services. I knew how hard it was for agencies to deliver an ROI from those marketing services. And as HubSpot was marketing, we were doing a good job of their own content marketing. We were capturing a lot of interest from agencies. Mm -hmm. They were basically just downloading our regular eBooks at the time. We used to do eBooks like crazy, like how to (laughs) to do social media, how to do paid ads. We'd have a how-to for everything. Yeah. 
or a webinar for everything or whatever. Um, so we were capturing all these leads. The agencies were kind of getting our funnel. They were wasting a lot of our time because they would have to learn the software, which was broader than what they're used to using. Mm-hmm. They'd have to then learn how to sell it or figure out how to sell it. And there just were very few that figured that out on their own. A few years into it, there were a few that were kind of like, yeah, hey, they had a few clients and they were happy and they liked us and they were really big advocates. And and so a few of those were my contacts. Mm-hmm. And so I started talking to them and figuring out what they were doing and started teaching them certain things that I had learned around sales and how they should sell, how they should package up their, their services, how they can sell it as a retainer instead of a project, which was mm-hmm. a big deal, a big transition for them to help them get cash flow and, and, and be able to invest in their business. And so realized there was an opportunity. I started pitching it internally. I got no a bunch of times. They said, mm-hmm. no, it's not a focus. No, we want to sell direct. No, there's no reason for resellers. Uh, agencies suck. <laughs> All kinds of reasons, like you know, they don't know how to run a business. How are they going to yeah. help us run ours, or, and all this other stuff? And so, I kind of just kept my head down, and they let me keep selling to mm-hmm. and through agencies. They wouldn't stop me from selling because they wanted new ca- accounts. And so, I ended up getting enough agencies on board. I started to help them kind of one on one with selling deals, and it started to get to the point where a few of them were independently selling deals. Mm-hmm. And then, fast forward, you know about a year and a half to two years of effort of my own personal effort got to the point where I was doing two to three X very consistently of sales of what a direct sales rep would do. Wow. And at that point it switched a little bit and say, Hey, what's going on here? Mm. Could you come to a presentation on how you would build this? And not everybody was on board at that time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember that, that presentation, I thought I was going to get a no that at the end of that meeting, because there were like four or five execs in the room and, Two of them were very much against it. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, in HubSpot, we were all very, we debated very openly, um, <laughs> and especially in the early days. So, so like it wasn't a secret that they were against it. And I was, you know, causing distractions by because agencies were a little different. And we needed to manage them differently and things like that. And so I thought it was going to be a no. And as I was literally walking out of the room, Brian Halligan said, okay, you can start it. <laughs> and you're going to report to Mike Volpe. And so it like, and I like looked at him like funny. He's like, do you have a problem with that? I'm like, no, no, I guess not. <laughs> it was just an insult to the guy that I was, that was managing before. I thought it was an insult at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, so anyways, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how, how it got started. Nice. Yeah. Cause it's it, from, I've been listening to a bunch of your stuff over the last few days. So it, it sounded like, like there was a lot of pushback at the beginning. I think you said you, you pitched it two or three times and before that one time that time that you just spoke about that you got yep. moved to under Mike Volpe what made you continue to push like that do you think it was i mean you're crushing your numbers so it was uh you know you're making more money by doing it this way or or were you also thinking it from a this is the right way to take the business standpoint yeah i'm not the kind of guy that you could say go do it this way and i'd be happy with that i'd always <laughs> be thinking what could I do to make this more efficient? What could I do this to make this better? How could I make it easier? Mm-hmm. So I'm always, that just my mind works that way. I think from an early age, I was encouraged to innovate yeah. uh, and think about things and having luck at that and, and focusing on that. It's just something that I uh, obsess over. So that's a big thing. I'm stubborn. Like you know, I'm, I think probably a little less stubborn these days. I'm also leading a company, so mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of people telling me what to do anyways. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, especially at that point in my career, I was 
very much not open to just doing it the way other people told me to do it. Yeah. How do you think you, how about were you at that time? That was uh, 2007 and I am 43. So 13 years ago, I guess I was 30. 30. Yeah. Okay. So that decision continued to push that. Yep. eventually became about 40% of HubSpot's revenue when you when you left, right? That's right. Yep. I'm pretty sure it's still pretty close. I think a few earnings call, they shared the numbers, and it's about 40% of revenue. Yep. Yeah. So, so obviously a, a good decision, right? Overall. Yeah, for the company, for, <laughs> for the sure. Company, it worked 100%. out. Yeah. Um, and that, I, like, just looking at the revenue, of course, is what you get at the end of the day of a reseller program. But I think it completely undercounts the value of the partner program to HubSpot in that they now have literally thousands of marketing agencies out there that are talking about HubSpot, yeah. uh, that are linking to HubSpot. I would be so bold to say that HubSpot would not master search engine optimization as well as they do mm-hmm. without the partner ecosystem that's constantly linked to them. Literally, like you go to some of these agency websites, it's in the footer of their website. So every page of their website is yeah. linking to HubSpot. HubSpot. Yeah. That, no, I mean, it changed the business without a doubt. I mean, without that, it's a completely different company. So I just wonder, like, do you think that is like a requirement for people who decide to join early stage companies, like that kind of spirit? Or, or, or if not, how do you think about people who join early stage companies? Like what are criteria from a personality standpoint? Who, who fits best? Yeah. So I think there's room for all kinds of people in a startup and a good startup can recognize the value of not just different skill sets, but different ways of thinking and different ways of doing. I have a woman working for me who is like my chief of staff. We don't officially give her that title because it sounds cocky on my side to have a chief of staff <laughs> with a 40 person startup. But, and, and she is creative uh, for sure. But she also just like, she can get stuff done. She keeps everything on track. She's analytical. Like there, So I think there's different people that, like to do different things. And that's important to have a startup. Like at HubSpot, a similar role was a guy named Brad Coffey, who's now the chief strategy officer there. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, a creative guy, but also just like kept everything strategically running in, in line. And so there's different, different people. I think different, I don't like to say um, personalities, but different traits that people have that are valuable in a startup. But yes, I think that's an important one. It's kind of the willingness to tinker and be creative, take an open-ended problem. Because mm-hmm. it is an earlier stage startup, there's a lot more open-ended problems or, or yeah. untapped opportunities, mm-hmm. which may require some level of creativity to capitalize on. Yeah, makes sense. So in one of the podcasts or something I read of yours, I don't remember exactly where, I heard you say you wanted to be a millionaire by the time you were 30. I also had that goal when I, uh, when I was, I think I made it when I was 20. I'm now 30. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Go. You made the, you made the goal at 20. All right, yeah. I made the goal it. at 20, yeah. but I didn't uh, hit it at 30 either. So yeah, don't, don't stress over it. Yeah. That was about to say, cause you, then you said it took you a decade longer to actually achieve it <laughs> <laughs> for yeah. people who have that goal, uh, like you and I did. Do you think joining a startup is like the right move for them to like ultimately get rich or what are the reasons that you think they should potentially yeah. join a startup or I not think join given my combination of skills and traits, it was the right decision for me. I'm not much of a saver. <laughs> you know, I, I, I could probably, I made plenty of money out of college as an engineer and did well. I could have lived a lot more modestly and saved enough to get to my goals probably. 
but I did. And I'm pretty frugal. So it's not like I'm extravagant with my mm-hmm. expenses, but I'll spend money on dinners and friends, beer and things like that. That's what I did in my twenties, at least. <laughs> we sound very similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think there's multiple ways to get there, but I do think that I would say that either founding a startup, mm-hmm. starting one, I, or joining one that is or has the potential to be a rocket ship. So it's a big market, has experienced people running it. I underestimated the value of that. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Brian and Dermesh both had a track record and knew how to run a business. Took me a lot of years to realize that they had wisdom there around that. Yeah, And so I think that that's important. I think later in career, I think there's, after you have maybe 10, 15 years of experience of working in a startup or an early enough stage startup, mm-hmm. I think there's also an opportunity to join a little bit of a later stage startup in a more senior position. Mm-hmm. And that's another opportunity. But I don't think that one's available to most. You don't get to walk in as like, you know, the VP of sales or CEO at a company that's de-risked and there's already success. And, yeah. Uh, but those, you know, those scenarios happen too. And I've seen some people that it takes that you have to it takes 20 years to get to that point where they can walk into a company get some equity and and you know and a good salary and yeah it's funny because so when i started rocket ship jobs the reason i started it was well, part of it was that right the equity aspect of start getting in a startup you yep. can potentially make a lot of money you know on when when it goes public or gets right. bought yep what i've learned as i've done this longer and and, and started to really like look into it is yep. A lot of times, well, not just not necessarily when I started Rock Jobs, but as I've looked more into startups, a lot of times, like you don't get enough equity for it to really become. I mean, it may make a you know a hundred thousand dollars here, two hundred thousand dollars, but you, it may right. it's not may not be enough to be life changing if you don't join the right startup one. If you're not getting enough equity too, right? Yeah, like when I joined, I didn't get a whole lot of equity. Yeah, and it wasn't worth anything in the beginning. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, I, I, I might have, I, I do remember actually asking for more, but I remember succinctly Mark Robert saying, join. And mm-hmm. if you do well, you can get more. So tell me about that. H- how did that go um, in terms of like over the course of time? Were you like continuing going back into Mark's office? Like, hey, Mark, like, look at my partner <laughs> program. Like, I'd, I'd like some more equity or were, were you negotiating? You know, I, I wish I would have done that more often and for, <laughs> for gone any cash raises and taken an equity. But, um, there was actually early on they they didn't really give much equity out to anyone other than we, we every new employee would get some, mm-hmm. and it got smaller and smaller as the as the company grew. I know that the top level executives got some along mm-hmm. the way, maybe not right away, but on an annual basis they would get some. That was just a very small handful of people, and so I was like the next level higher and the next level in terms of the org chart, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Fairly early on, they had this thing called the Founders Award, and they actually gave out stock in front of the whole company. It was only two people that ever got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one guy in in marketing, and then I got the second one. Uh, and it was for a good chunk of shares. Would you mind sharing, or, or is that too personal? Uh, it was 50,000 shares at the time. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that means, but in terms of... Yeah. So you got <laughs> you, there was stock, reverse stock splits. There's all kinds of weird yeah, stuff. So yeah. you can't just do the math and say, oh, pizza, you know, got 10 million in the bank. It's, I don't. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. No, I don't want to count your money. Just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I got you. So, but relatively, it's a lot, it was a lot of money. And so that I earned that. And then as I was, you know, once it was clear that like, oh, I'm 
running 30, 40% of the the business, (laughs) then they started to build equity into my compensation plan on an annual basis. Oh, nice. Um, So, and that's pretty standard that, especially for a company that's growing fast Mm -hmm. and raising rounds of funding, the investors actually want you to put money, put stock aside to reward the employees. And if you look at even like salesforce.com or Amazon, um, I think comes about to a certain extent, but I haven't analyzed it closely. They continue to do that even after they're public. Uh, and that's a big yeah. portion of the of the compensation for people. Makes sense. And do you do you know like how they how they do that from or 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 you maybe you can even talk to it at, at, at Databox. Like how do they split that up at a uh, from a percentage standpoint, like for people? Like is it like they're giving people a 0.1% extra as you do better or, or, or you get 0.1 yeah, when you so, join? Or, or, so, yeah. like at, so at HubSpot, it was generally like they would do the cash value of it and mm. people would think, oh, okay, I just got $5,000 worth of stock. Mm. We even ran some sales contests where we would give away a certain dollar value of dollar value of stock based off of you know winning a contest or you know achieving the most in a quarter or a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some pretty help, happy sales reps after that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little, it's a little, you know, you don't want to do is say like, uh, you know, you have points because those are small numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you got hundreds of employees and you're giving out shares, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. Your points are it's like so it's like, and and also the the valuations, you know, we didn't stress over the valuation of the company, mm-hmm. but you know, if I think if if you're advising a company, have shares in a company, it's certainly a fair question to ask what is the uh, fair market value Yeah, and how many outstanding shares are there and compare that to what you have and do the math. You're, you're very, you're very open from the uh, transparent from a, a startup standpoint with Databox. Yeah. Do you find that other people are transparent with that kind of stuff? Because I remember I joined a startup in 2014 and, and what people told me to ask was that the, the you know, outstanding yeah. shares and, and valuation. And they wouldn't tell me at, at that time. And oh, I, I really? Still don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you might not have been like applying. For, I don't know. Maybe you weren't applying for a job where they felt like. Yeah, it wasn't that high. There's a lot of companies. <laughs> like I was just advising a buddy of mine uh, who's going joining a company that's doing very well, like mm-hmm. 100 million dollars in revenue, and they were really close to the vest about it initially until mm-hmm. they realized that like, okay, if we want this guy to join, we got to bring him in as an executive, and he finally got to the right people, and they started being more serious about it. But I think even big companies like that, they just don't don't always give out equity. Hub, HubSpot, I think, was very generous with equity. There was always, there was always Brian and Amash always had this idea, we're going to go public, we're going to build a multi-billion dollar company, mm-hmm. we want everybody to work hard. We worked our asses off, especially in the early days. Mm-hmm. It's not going to always be fun, although on the balance, it was, I remember a lot of good times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to make sure everybody feels like an order. Yeah, that's awesome. Every company is a little different, I think. Yeah. So, so that, that brings me to, uh, I think, the this next party of your career with, with Databox, how do you view the long-term goal? Like you, you said, uh, Brian Dermesh, you know, thinking billion-dollar company, you know, eventually when you look at Databox, what's kind of the long-term strategy or, or goal there? We're taking a very different approach, but I have similar ambitions. I don't know that I ever want to, I don't know that we want to go public. I don't know if, you know, I want to keep doing what Brian's doing after going public. I, <laughs> I'm i more of a... Um, like if I was being, if I knew what I knew now, I'd say like my goal in life is, to, and I was 
graduating high school and setting my target. My goal in life would be to have one between one and ten million dollars in the bank, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't want. I don't need a hundred million dollars in the bank. I just don't even imagine. I can't imagine what I do with it. I don't know that I want the level of responsibility. But who knows? Maybe maybe I'll bring somebody in to run it, and, and I'll stay involved in strategy and things like that. We'll see. But um, we do have an ambition, though, to build a big company. I think the drive is much less about the money and much more about the impact that we can have. Mm-hmm. We want to be right, right? We know that we know that there's a big opportunity for what we're doing. The timing is pretty good, and if we think that in the next few years, the timing will be amazing for what we're doing. And we think we're positioned really well to capitalize on that growth. So I think that's what drives us about being right, about having an impact. Um, And so, yeah, we want to build a big company. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about um, being positioned right, right? So I I was reading earlier, I saw a tweet and they they were speaking about like APIs as being a, uh, you know, big space. And then you look at companies like Played that just got bought for $5 billion. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with by Visa. You look yeah. at, there's a company, Try Daily, that's doing like Zoom for like other companies, like an API Zoom version kind of thing. Okay. And then I look at you guys and you're not an AP, I mean, you're not an API at all, right? I mean. No, we we don't provide an API service in the, in the, in the sense that like Pad would or Stripe would. Or, exactly. Or- but. From what you guys are doing, I mean, you're connecting a lot of different services into into your your platform, right? Yeah, we couldn't exist unless if, unless there were APIs that existed. We wouldn't exist, right? Yeah, we built our business on top of other people's APIs. APIs, exactly. Do you guys plan on making like a public API for your your service so that people can connect? So, so back we in? have an API so that people can uh, push data into our system. Our our system is all about getting your company's performance data into in, one location yep. and then being able to view it however you want, visualize it however you want mm-hmm. on any device. So just by definition, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have an API that people it's can pull data out of because yeah. okay. we're all we're doing is play it. Now, not saying we won't in the future. It's just like for where we're at now, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But building, like we wouldn't have been able to build this business, I think even just eight years ago. Maybe even, it would be hard to build this business five years ago. And even now, there's a lot of companies with really shitty APIs yeah. and it just makes it hard for us to do what we're doing. So like I said, I think the timing is right now. Hmm. And I think as APIs, because you're recognizing that the importance of APIs, the world is, as APIs mature, as platforms mature, you know, platforms like HubSpot and Intercom and Drift and ActiveCampaign and all these platforms as they mature and their APIs mature, um, yeah, the timing is is amazing for yeah. for us. Great, great, great for you guys. So let's talk uh, the numbers a little bit because you you do get pretty and you can you know I, I just want to talk about it a little bit. So when you joined in 2017, I think it was early 2017. What was the the AR about back then? Just a few grand. Yeah. Uh, it was really low. They had they had maybe 20, 30 customers for paying, you know, a small amount of money each month. Okay. And then I and I and then I saw you on uh Nathan Latka's and you guys were about one point one. That was July twenty eighteen, about. Yep. Yep. You did you've done really good homework, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and then January of uh twenty nineteen, it looks like you were at about one point seven. Uh and that was yep. when that was when Brian, I wanna say his name. Uh, was leaving to go yeah, to Amazon. Mostly. Yep. 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 Wow. Yep. So that's about a little more than a year ago now. Um, right. How are you guys doing today? 
How's it look? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're just shy of three million. I think we're doing like two point eight million ARR right now. Nice, nice. So, so about a, a little more than a million dollar uh, ARR growth. That's that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're moving along. You know, I think like most SaaS companies, we had a little bit of a setback with coronavirus, but um, and I've actually shared um, a few weeks ago. I shared our numbers now and actually through coronavirus on, in a blog post called. Um, how to manage performance uh, during a crisis, and on our on our blog, and so, but our numbers look good now. Like a few weeks ago, our cancellation rate went back down to normal. Our sales sales close rate and sales close volume went back to normal. Uh, we're actually seeing some level of of acceleration here on the sales side, as I think companies shift in a few ways. One, realizing that remote is not a temporary thing, and they actually need to manage performance a little bit better. And number two as we're seeing a lot of businesses shift their business model online and things become more measurable, um, we become a lot more valuable than, than we did maybe before where things used to happen offline or where marketing happened more prevalently online. I think just the movement to digital for many companies in order to adapt and survive is, um, means that they'll be investing in, in more solutions like Databox. Awesome. Yeah, that was going to be uh, my next question is, COVID related to seeing how things are going and what you thought. Yeah. Not easy. Not easy. We did, we did take a step back. It's, it's not all ugly. And I don't think we're not like Slack or zoom where like the day everybody shut down their offices, you needed Slack or zoom. Yeah. And, uh, and so we're not a project management system, which I think is also important, but I think we're like that next category of like, all right, now that we have all our stuff set up and people can actually work from home and now we need to manage performance. We need to manage, we need to observe what people are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to observe the results. We need to see leading and lagging indicators, and we can't leave that to chance. There's no chance that we're going to meet up uh, at the water cooler and make sure people are doing their work. We're not going to yeah. observe or look over the shoulders of people. So we need to be able to see what's going on in the business. So we're seeing some uptake from that. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure how it was going to be affecting you guys because you're you're marketing focused, and I know a lot of companies have, and not only marketing focused, marketing agency focused. Right. And from what I understand. You know, a lot of companies have, have cut back a, a decent amount on their, you know, marketing budgets and things of that nature. So I yeah. wasn't sure if that may have affected you guys. Yeah, I think people have cut back on traditional marketing because they can't do it mm-hmm. to some degree. Right? You can't do events, <laughs> um, yeah. whether it's a trade show or your own events of some sort. So I think that money has moved over. A lot of people are doing virtual events now, webinars yeah. now. So that's shifted online. I think ad budgets may be cut in certain markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as as the big platforms have kind of alluded to in their earnings releases. Mm-hmm. We're heavily focused on helping companies with kind of organic or inbound marketing, video marketing, things like that, mm-hmm. because of our integrations with Google Analytics and, and HubSpot and things like Vimeo and YouTube and social nets and stuff. And we're seeing like a shift towards that a little bit. People are realizing, all right, we don't have a lot of money to spend on ads, mm. but this in, online inbound marketing stuff works. So... And it feeds our sales team, and we can't afford at this point to let our whole sales team go, or we, yeah. we haven't let our sales team go. So we got to keep busy, uh, and it's a little harder for them right now. So, and then, and so what we're seeing is that focus in on effective marketing and sales efforts, mm-hmm. and those are two really good use cases for for DataBox. Yeah. You're gonna invest in stuff. You need to know how it's working. That that makes that makes sense. That that makes that makes a ton of sense. I told you I had I had Dave Gerhardt on here. Yeah, he was yeah, he course. was episode one. Dave, that's great. Uh, and and one of the things he talks a lot about right now is making content 
is the key, even if you don't have the budget. So I, I and I, I, I've been playing around with Databox and just trying to, you know, learn a little more about it. And I can see a completely how, um, you know, if you're making a lot of content, that would be, you know, very beneficial for you yes. to, to kind of get. Yeah, a lot of that stuff's unpredictable. You got to pay attention to it closely. Somebody recently tweeted, like, if you're not doing a weekly SEO report and you're creating content, then you're screwing up because there's clear little things that you can do. Yeah. Either oh, fix wow. things that go down or you can capitalize on stuff that's working well. Give me, give me, give me a little, uh, a little tip there. What, what would you say? Um, and this is, this is a little, this is a selfish question. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I am doing, uh, you know, uh, content weekly. Yeah. I noticed. Yeah. You're doing good stuff. Thank you. I like your theme a lot too. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. What is something like that you're seeing people could be doing better or, or looking at within data box that can make their yeah. SEO better. You know, if they're looking at it weekly, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I one so it depends on how much content you have, how much traffic you have. But once you get to the point where you have say hundred plus, maybe two hundred articles, and you're doing tens of thousands of sessions in a month, uh, even in the low end, that's when you should start paying attention to how do I improve my existing content. And first step is just to figure out which content's actually attracting traffic and converting for you. I wish we had done that sooner and I wish we do it, did it more often. We're actually just starting this quarter to do this more frequently where we're actually shifted like from, we were probably 80% focused, maybe 90% focused on new content just a few months ago. And then we've shifted where we're probably closer to, let, we've kind of flipped it maybe 60% focused on on updating stuff and 40% focused on new. And you know, I'll probably get to the, back to the point where we're doing the same amount of new and, and also doing this much updates, but my marketing director, John, is on paternity. And when COVID hit, we decided to cut back a little bit on our freelance uh, marketing budget. So the new stuff, uh, we slowed down a little bit just to, just for those two reasons. But we'll get, we'll get back to it soon. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So... There's there's so there's so much I, I've been I've been just learning about about Databox and I'm 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 really interested in kind of what you guys are doing. And I think and I agree with you. I think over time, you guys are going to be situated really well for it for for you know where the world's going. One thing I I noticed I heard you say on one of the podcasts is if you were in control of everything while you were at HubSpot from a partnering standpoint, you would have maybe done a few things a little different in regards to how they, they set up the business. I think it was like they decided to not co-market as much as you would have wanted to. And it seems like that's kind of, and what I'm trying to figure out, it seems like Databox isn't 100% through, it's not actually, I know that, it's not 100% through marketing agencies. But based on that statement, I would have thought you would have went 100% through uh, marketing agencies. Why didn't you decide not to do that, to do something direct? Yeah, so when I said that about HubSpot, there was the software had to be sold, especially at HubSpot. It's complicated, wasn't the easiest, or you couldn't quickly set it up. Uh, and so the software was sold. So the, it either needed to go through a direct sales team or through a partner to be sold. And so what happened at HubSpot is those two sales function sales teams were separate. And as the company got really big, it got to the point where we're competing over deals and just created an awful culture internally uh, and also created distrust amongst partners that we weren't optimizing for their best interests, that we we're optimizing for our own. 
also wasn't fair to the direct team as well when a partner got involved. And we just didn't have rules of engagement there. So over time, HubSpot's done a much better job of having rules engagement first and then also fairly compensating both direct sales team members and partners. And I still think there's some ways they have to go to really make that fly to the point where partners and direct reps want to work together. Right now, it's still, I think, and I, have, I don't have an internal... Like I don't know how it is internally, but based on how I believe it's set up, I still think there's some friction there. And so I just didn't want to recreate that friction at Databox. And if I take it to the other the other extreme, what I wanted to create is a system where everybody wins, or as you both partner and Databox wins when one wins. I've taken a different approach than I would have at HubSpot, but I've kept that goal in mind of creating win-win. What's changed at Databox, and, and I think it just in time, is the importance of freemium models for software sales and how valuable that is. And so two-thirds of our sales, we don't have a Zoom call with. We might help them like through chat because we offer chat support to freeze, but we don't have a Zoom call. So two, two th- I consider two-thirds of our sales self-service. That is so much more efficient than any salesperson um, can possibly be, whether they're a direct sales rep or a partner reselling, uh, at least in terms of getting that initial transaction done. And so we're heavy on that. We have a product growth team internally. We're re- they've, oh, the team's always been great at UI, UX, and thinking about simplicity. But even all the way through to the way the system is architected on the back end, the things we have built are designed to make it easy to get set up. And I'm not saying it's simple, but for somebody who's analytical and, and willing to play around, it's, it's the simplest solution out there. And so that advantage has allowed us to sell freemium direct. Templates are huge for that, by the way. They help, they've helped me a right. lot. That's, helped me that's a lot. one example. Yeah. yeah. And those things will be, we're about to roll out some major improvements to our visualization capabilities. Those templates will be night and day in a few months. But so that's one example. But even the way we build our integrations, like a lot of our competitors, when they build an integration, all they do is build the authentication integration. And then they just let you pull the data in. And then you got to figure out what the hell is this data telling me? How do I turn this into a number or a line chart? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of steps in between. Whereas what we do is we we build the integration. We define all of the metrics that are possible. Mm -hmm. We pick the visualization for you. And so all you got to do is pick boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And then that's your, you know, you pick all the metrics you want and then it builds a data board for you. So that kind of stuff. But even on top of that, like we constantly are running Improve, building improvements into the product, to the UI, UX, mm-hmm. running experiments, et cetera, et cetera, in order to remove friction points in the product. To the, and we measure everything that we're doing. So, yeah. for example, we just improved the flow to help people connect their data source. So when they want to connect to Google Analytics or HubSpot or Facebook ads or whatever, mm-hmm. they can. we almost doubled the number of successful connections that are given on through this, this one experiment wow. that we yeah. And so we're just constantly doing Finding these, those, these yeah. things to improve. So long story short on your original question is the reason I didn't go all partners because I think self-service premium models are a significantly more efficient model for, mm. for sale, software companies to go to market. However, it's still not perfect. Like you've, you've said, you've been playing around with the tool. There's a learning curve there. Mm-hmm. Not only that, there's a, like, you got to have a lot of knowledge on like, how does Google Analytics work? How does HubSpot work? Yeah. How does Facebook ads work? As YouTube work, 
and like and what metrics do each of those have and there's very few humans that have all that knowledge in yeah. their head i'm not one of them <laughs> right. i'm not either I've, i at some point along the way i'm like i'm not the product expert anymore yeah yeah uh, and so uh, i have an old team that does that and they're cross trained and they help each other we figure it out but mm-hmm. so i get it um but anyways the partners or agencies are often good at a good portion of that yeah Mm-hmm. And so there is still a lot of value in working with one of our partners to get set up on Databox. It'll happen a lot quicker for you than you figure it out on your own. Mm-hmm. They, a lot of them do it as part of their engagement mm-hmm. as well. So if you're hiring an agency to do stuff for you, like they, you know, they should they should bring Databox along and, and be able to yeah. present how they're doing and help you analyze your business and all that. So I think there's a lot of value that the partner brings. And, uh, and so that, that's why it's not one or the other and it's both. And we've built a very generous program for agencies where they get a bulk, a, a massive bulk discount on the products. So if they're using us for multiple clients, it's a, it's very beneficial for them yeah. to, uh, to resell. And we're doing, we're, we're along with some improvements in the product and uh launch of some other stuff where we'll be relaunching the partner program actually. in uh, most likely this quarter, hopefully, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe early next quarter. Gotcha. And I, I can do this all day with you, but I, I, I'll let you go uh, very, very, uh, very soon. A uh, few quick questions left. So I know you sell directly, but do you have direct sales reps or, or you don't do that? Uh, good, good question. This is related to your other question too. Like another big difference between HubSpot and Databox is we do have people that we call salespeople. We just started calling them salespeople. Mm-hmm. There's uh, three people on the team that that jump on Zoom calls and help users get set up and help them evaluate the product, figure out their timing, you know, sell them, mm-hmm. sell them an onboarding service if necessary, things like that. And then we have seven people that are in chat all day, and they actually help both free users and and our customers. And they're mm-hmm. offering to help build a data board or dashboard for a user. And then if the user needs more help, jumping, uh, offering a call with one of our sellers. So we do have sales. However, it's different than than most software companies. We don't commission anyone. Everyone's paid a salary. Um, we do have mm-hmm. goals and targets. The team generally hits them, but I'm not firing anyone if they miss it. All the salespeople mm-hmm. have some smaller projects they're working on that are a little bit longer term and help us learn so that we can improve the product so that we need less salespeople over time. Gotcha. So I'm much more about building a system than we are about building this hungry sales team. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, we have goals and we and we target them and we achieve them and we celebrate them and all that stuff. We just don't uh it's not about the money. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that, I wanted to ask that because I've heard you say, if you look at HubSpot versus Mailchimp, yeah, you'd rather be Mailchimp than than HubSpot in a way, right? Because their their product kind of sells itself and ups ups. Uh, yeah, I think there's, al- there's always something else they can sell <laughs> efficiently, and yeah, HubSpot's doing just fine too. Their their average sale yeah. price is so much higher because they have a sales team. I think conventional SaaS wisdom at this point is that you need a sales team as soon as you're sales price gets to a certain level. I don't think that'll be mm-hmm. true in a few years. And I think companies like Databox and, and you know MailChimp certainly further along, but companies that optimize the system will have customers that are paying more and more dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't need salespeople to do that. Or I should say you don't need traditional salespeople to do that. But yeah, I think at the current state of affairs, you know, HubSpot, I think our ISP is like 1200 bucks a month. So we're nowhere mm-hmm. near that. We're closer to 150 bucks a month. So salespeople are certainly closing those deals. Gotcha. Okay. Hey, well, I, I look forward to checking back in with you uh, as we get closer to that point where you guys are uh, 
where, where, where we've reached that future that you're talking about where salespeople may or may not be needed, <laughs> you know, to close the bigger deals. Yep. I, I still think uh, for the big ones, you may need you, you need them like uh, looking at Slack, the slacks of the world and things like that. Yeah. So uh, before we close, Databox, are you guys hiring right now? I, I, when I look at your, your jobs, I, it looks like there's a few, but I, I wanted to uh, yeah, so we're, we're definitely hiring for some senior engineering talent right now. Um, we look mm-hmm. for that those people in Slovenia, which is where the majority mm-hmm. of the engineering team is, is focused. We will have, some, by the time you publish this, we will probably have some new openings, um, planning to open up some jobs in both sales and customer support, potentially in marketing as well. Nice. So yeah, I think uh, we, we will be hiring. Right now, we shut them down. We had a few positions open. We When COVID hit, we decided to put a pause so we could focus on some internal stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, things are looking good and we'll be opening those back up. Cool. Great to hear. So And uh and you mentioned Slovenia, so I have to ask this. So actually two questions. How big is the team today? Yeah. And when you think about hiring, is it all location dependent or are you guys doing remote hiring now uh, considering right. things? Right. Um, so it's 46 people now. Nice. Again, the engineering team. Uh, the, it was the, 25 last year, right? Like 2019, you guys were about 25. Yes, we almost doubled year over year. Yep. Yep. Nice. Okay. The engineering team is largely based in Slovenia. The mm-hmm. the co- one of the co-founders, main co-founder, and uh, and he's also the chief product officer, mm-hmm. the driver of DataBox. Uh, he's based there, and he he likes having the engineering team there. They've built a really cool culture. There's a few good engineering schools in the area, and so we largely built that team there. There's no plans to hire outside the region for engineering, and that's about half our company. A little more than half the company is is across mm-hmm. three different engineering teams, and then. For marketing, sales, and support, we're a little bit mixed, meaning we do have some people there. And mm-hmm. I like that because they're close to the engineering team, especially on the support and sales side. Uh, but mm-hmm. a good portion of our, our team is remote. And I'd say on the support and sales side, my hope is to actually hire more remote in order to get some time zone coverage that we don't have right now. So. Nice. So the plan is, yeah, I'm hoping to hire some in LATAM, Latin America, or, or South America, as well as uh, somewhere in the in the east. Uh, I haven't figured out exactly where, but I want to be able to cover um, the other side of the world, which we're not doing right now very well, at least from a time zone. Our, sometimes our teams will, you know, stay up later, get up mm-hmm. early, and have some calls, but um, it's not we're not effectively hitting that hitting those time zones very well. Gotcha. Awesome. Hey, well, Pete, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, where can everybody find you if they uh, want to learn more about you? Or yeah, my it? preference is Twitter. I try. I, I have trouble with my email inbox keeping up, and I have trouble <laughs> with LinkedIn in the same way. But for some reason, I get sucked into Twitter, and I think it creates like a necessary bar. A lot of people don't seem to actually use Twitter to DM <laughs> or direct message, but um, and so I like it. It's it keeps it clean for me. So PC Four Media is my handle. PC the number four and media. Awesome. All right. Hey, well, well, Pete, I will uh, see you back on Twitter. Thanks for uh, joining me. Thank you, Henry. It was a pleasure talking to you. You as well. See you. Thanks for listening to Riding a Rocket by RocketShipJobs.com. To join our newsletter with hundreds of other ambitious people, go to RocketShipJobs.com. Leave your email address and we'll send you the next exclusive opportunity.